Hi everybody, and welcome to the 90x9 show. As some of you may know, since 2009, I've worked with quite a few startups around the planet. Throughout this time, I had the opportunity to meet some amazingly intelligent, talented, and incredibly driven people. Many of them had stories that should have been heard by an audience of more than just me and my cup of coffee. Unfortunately, I did not think to create a podcast to showcase these amazing humans until now. In the spring of 2019, I started with the simple goal to feature one female founder each month. But as each episode aired, the questions submitted by you, amazing listeners, led this show on a very different path. What started as a female-focused knowledge base has transformed into a conversational showcase of high-performing professionals, investors, athletes, and thought leaders. So without further ado, welcome to the 90x9 show. Hello, lovely listeners. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. Gopi is one of the most brilliant advisors that I currently and very frequently (laughs) rely on for guidance when it comes to epic feats in need of a highly strategic mind. After episode seven of this amazing podcast, I received a few questions around venture capital and immediately thought of him. So here to answer all of your VC questions is my favorite Silicon Valley-based venture capitalist, Gopi, the founder of Shore Ventures. Hi, Adi. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. I'm delighted to share my experience and insights. Hello, everyone. I'm the founder of Shore Ventures. Let's dive into it. When did you start Shore Ventures and why? I launched the fund early last year, early 2018. And the reason I started the fund was that I felt that there's a clear need in the world of the startup ecosystem where startups, especially in the insure tech sector, were struggling to find good investors to work with. So that became a huge opportunity. And more importantly, from my own personal perspective, I wanted to work on a business that had a very strong mission that lasted many, many years. So I came up with the mission of enabling peace of mind for all individuals and businesses. And I wanted to invest in startups that focus on that type of mission. So that was the genesis story of building Sure Ventures from the early days. What did you do before starting Sure Ventures that equipped and prepared you for this? Like, what's your origin story if you were a superhero? (laughs) I'm not really a superhero. I'm just an investor. I love working with entrepreneurs, especially at the early stages. The early stages of a business is a roller coaster ride. And a small contribution that I make can have a huge impact on their business. And that's very, very fulfilling to me. And I had this type of experience over many years being active in the venture capital world. That's what inspired me to start my own fund. So prior to starting the fund, I helped start an angel investment group. And that was was very helpful for me because it gave me a window into the world of the startup ecosystem and how entrepreneurs think, especially at the founding stages in the very, very early stages, like scary early. And prior to starting that angel investment group, it's the angel investment group was INSEAD Angels. It's the alumni community for angel investors that graduated from the business school INSEAD. And it's in the wow. Silicon Valley. So that was fantastic. A strong group came together and we made a bunch of investments as a group. So prior to that, I was with two different organizations. I was on the investment team at USA's Corporate Venture Group. I was a managing director there. And there I was exposed to the whole world of financial services, banking, insurance, and investment management, and many other things. And I saw there that, especially in the world of insurance, technology had barely had an impact. Having seen technology having impact on the telecom world or media and other sectors, I noticed that various aspects of insurance could benefit from the use of technology in a substantial way. And that sparked the thought that over the next 10, 20 years, there will be lots of opportunities for technology to improve the way insurance works and create new products and services in that sector. That was a fascinating experience for me at USA. And prior to that, I was at a company called Altera, which is now part of Intel. Intel acquired the company. Now, I helped make investments for Altera on the strategic investment side. 
And that was my foray into the world of venture capital. I learned a lot from some amazing entrepreneurs that I work with. And between the two organizations at Altera and later at USA, I worked with some entrepreneurs that were easily among the best in the world. There was one IPO that came out of the portfolio and there were a whole bunch of acquisitions and most of the other startups went on to raise follow-on funding. So I had the distinct pleasure of working with entrepreneurs that were very, very successful in the ecosystem. So that prepared me for this journey that I'm starting now with Sure Ventures. Some people, they just think that, oh, I'm taking a shower one morning and I've decided I'm going to be a venture capitalist. Let me go out and just get a bunch of money and see what I can do. And no one takes them seriously. But then when we hear a story like yours, it's like, holy cow, you've really been in the trenches. You've been through the wars. You've cut your teeth with the greatest wolf packs out there. And you really did come up within the startup space to really, really know what you're doing. So let's hop over to this one. What questions did you ask yourself when looking at starting Shore Ventures? We now know that you have an extensive background. You have a lot of knowledge. You've worked with a lot of heavy hitters. What were some things based on your experience that you were like, okay, I need to look at these qualifiers before I make the move? See, with Shore Ventures, I'm an entrepreneur myself. So I actually have more empathy for entrepreneurs than I did earlier in my years in my career. <laughs> so there are two things that I ask myself. One mm -hmm. is, do I have the commitment to stay with this for many, many years? Building a venture fund oh, yeah. is actually very difficult. And the story of a venture fund doesn't play out until the third fund or sometimes even the fourth fund. So it takes many years yeah. for each of these funds to be operational. They make an impact in the portfolio companies that are built and eventually to generate exits. To see that whole story play out, it takes many, many years. I wanted to know that I have a purpose and I have a mission that I can espouse and I can marry that will stay with me for many, many years. That's one question I asked. And the other question, which is a more popular question that a lot of entrepreneurs ask is, do you have the guts to cut the cord and walk away from other equally attractive opportunities and instead start this new business that has shows promise, but it might be a very adventurous ride with ups and downs. The highs are high highs and the lows are low lows. Do you have the gut to jump into something like this? So that's what most people talk about. That is also important mm -hmm. to have the bravado to go out and start a business, and especially starting something like a venture fund. It's one of the hardest things to do. Those two questions were on my mind. The first question was more important to me. The bravado and everything, I was very fortunate having seen many entrepreneurs start businesses. I understood that it takes that type of courage to go out and start a business. Courage alone is not sufficient, especially with a venture fund. Yeah. It takes the ability to stay through. And what convinced me that I have the right idea and the right type of opportunity to stay through is that the space that I've found. The space is that just like how fintech revolutionized banking, in a similar mm -hmm. way, InsurTech is likely to revolutionize the world of insurance. And if you look at the world of insurance, it touches people's lives in a meaningful way almost every day. Every business and every person has that access to people who do have access to financial services in the world of insurance. They benefit from this and people who don't will hopefully have that in the future. And if you look at that whole sector, it's a massive sector. It's not a niche sector. It's $5 trillion of premium collected by all the insurance companies put together worldwide. And that oh becomes gosh. a backbone of the world economy. And this large powerhouse within the economic world has had very, very little innovation. Something that touches people's lives hasn't really, in a meaningful way, hasn't really evolved the products and the services and the internal infrastructure hasn't really changed a lot over decades. I used to joke that, you know, for decades, the things, you know, the auto insurance product, home insurance products, and the way we deal with insurance has remained the same for decades. And I was a little shy to say that insurance companies haven't innovated in decades. But then the past CEO of Aviva came out and said in one of the public forums that insurance is stuck in Stone Age. So that made it easier for me to claim my own words that there is a lot of room for innovation out here. So that becomes a ripe ground for startups to go out and build innovative solutions because the incumbents aren't. And that became a very, very strong reason for me to stick with something that I would work on for many, many years. So I'm dying to know your thoughts on the new app that's supposed to be disrupting the insurance space, Lemonade. What do you think? So there are many companies like Lemonade. Lemonade is a story that we hear quite often. 
it is an example of how new ways of designing products, especially reaching customers through mobile platforms and web platforms, can change engagement in insurance. Distribution is one of the most popularly addressed issues in insurance, and that's why we get to see companies like Lemonade and others focus on this problem, but there's more to insurance than just distribution. Now, don't get me wrong, distribution is an important problem. It's a complicated problem, and I don't think we've fully solved it, and there are many more solutions like Lemonade that we will get to see in the future. But I also see a lot more opportunities in other aspects of insurance like underwriting insurance, like how do you detect fraud? And how do you build a better policy administration platform? How do you build a core systems infrastructure that is born in the digital world? And can you use technology like blockchain or machine learning and advanced capabilities that will significantly improve efficiency in the world of insurance? And I think Lemonade is kind of scratching the surface of that. And it's one of the few examples that we see today. I expect to see hundreds of startups in this space that will begin to solve some of the problems that we see today. What were a few surprising lessons that you learned when you first launched Shore Ventures? <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning. See, I'm an entrepreneur, so I have a lot of good days, uh, many good days. And there are also days when I curl up and I ask myself, like, why did I sign up to do? But that's part of the journey. And there are many lessons that I reflect on. Space of learning is quite accelerated when we are an entrepreneur. So I'm experiencing that now. There are many lessons that I've learned. One of the lessons that I've learned more recently is the timeline for entrepreneurs and how they think about building a solution, especially in the world of insurance. It is not the same timeline as other companies in other sectors. So for example, the kind of complicated regulations that happen in the world of insurance. That sometimes scares both entrepreneurs and, and other investors. So there has to be some level of maturity in understanding the regulations before the insurance startup can launch a business. But at the same time, there are also some entrepreneurs and even some other VCs that think that they can build anything and disrupt a sector and take down a whole chunk of the industry uh, quite easily. And that's not easy. It takes time to establish an insurance business and be respectful of some of the regulatory guidelines. Not all regulatory guidelines are perfect and some of them probably need to go. But I think the assumption that some entrepreneurs make uh, is that you know, just like how we disrupted other sectors, now we're four people in a garage, we'll write software and that'll take down a chunk of the industry. That's not going to happen easily in the world of insurance. It might happen in some situations, but most opportunities require existing incumbents to come together, sit at the table, and work with uh, innovative startups. And uh, that building the bridge between the startup and the existing incumbents, the successful relationship between the two will make it possible for startups to grow much faster and also for these large companies to get access to innovation. So that was one of the lessons that I learned just as I was starting Shore Ventures. I knew that this was important, but I've now realized how important it is. And it's important to bring different players in into the room to make it work. I can't tell you how many times I've had meetings with first-time founders and they're like, oh, we're going to do all this and we're going to be the first movers and we're going to disrupt an industry. And they're talking as if the incumbents won't fight back. I'm like, they're war chest for a month is more than your five-year marketing budget. There's no way that you can outscale them. You're going to have to find someone to partner with and an ally that's going to help you to grow because there's no way that you're going to be able to compete with multi-million dollar companies. It's just not going to happen. That's true. If you look at some of the most successful insurance companies, the top 20 insurance companies, they have a very healthy business and they've been going on for years and some of them for decades or even more than a century. So they have learned to evolve over different types of business cycles over the years. And that generational stability, you know, kudos to them. So they've been able to build a business like that. What I tell them when I meet large corporations is that what got you here will not get you to the future. So the world is different today. But at the same time, the flip side is that for startups to learn from these successful businesses that have lasted for decades, it's good to know that the foundation of those businesses were very strong. And that's something that startups can learn from. What made you decide to launch Shore Ventures instead of joining another firm? 
just like everybody else now i also had insurance products like very early in my life i had an incident that opened my eyes on how insurance has an impact on people's lives i got into a car accident when i was 23 years old i was a new immigrant in the country i got my first job in the silicon valley i was the top of my world but all that came crashing when i got into a car accident my car was totaled and thankfully nothing happened to me but i went to the movies that day everything was fine but the impression that stayed with me was that the presence of an insurance solution that put me back on my feet and i went to work the following day so that really opened my eyes and since then you know, it's like you know photography once you become a photographer and you see everything through the lens of a camera and i started looking at the world through that lens where like why is this person taking a risk because there's a safety net that protects him why is this business able to take a risk because there's a safety net that protects them and later when i was in business school at insiad i visited bangladesh and i saw how mohammed yunus had created an impact in bangladesh person after person family after family village after village what he had done was create safety nets for people so that when bad things happen it could be as simple as a bicycle getting that has an impact on the family or it could be a natural disaster a famine or a flood that wipes an entire village out and how do you get those people back on their feet and that's what i saw that access to financial products that create a safety net will have a massive impact on people's lives so when i started thinking about sure ventures what do i want to do with the next 20 30 years of my life this became the crux of that thesis so that was the genesis of sure ventures and what i thought about when i started the sure ventures powerful origin story here knowing what you know now what <coughs> will change with sure ventures 2.0 <laughs> i'm still in the early stages of 1.0s i don't <laughs> want to get uh, too far ahead of myself but no, i think it's a very good question these kind of questions are very very relevant for venture capital investors and i think every entrepreneur should ask this question what's the future of this firm and that's important and the vc should be able to answer these kind of questions because they always should have a vision for what's their next fund and the subsequent fund so my vision for sure ventures is that it will start as a small fund and i expect that that bridge we talked about creating a bridge between startups and large corporations i want to build that bridge so well that both corporations can access innovation in the startup ecosystem and the startups can also benefit from learning to work with some large corporations but let's kind of unpack that mm -hmm. what i expect to do even better with sure ventures 2.0 is that i want to be able to help startups navigate the confusing complicated bureaucratic landscape within a large corporation where if it's not invented here it goes to die or there are enough antibodies that kill new ideas within a large corporation <laughs> how do you navigate that as a startup and you find champions within these corporations that understand what you do and appreciate and they will fight for you and at the same time they also find a strategic goal that aligns with them so it would be a meaningful commercial partnership so i want to be able to facilitate that from a startup side and from mm -hmm. the other side from a corporation's perspective it is very difficult to work with a startup that barely has an idea or a prototype that it's not very stable or robust and even if they have revenue it's not a stable revenue that's steadily growing what do you do with a company like this how do you wrap your head around a business that is young and growing but has a great potential and how can you find opportunities that can tap into the innovation outside the four walls of the corporation so that you can get access to innovation in the startup ecosystem uh, when there is so much noise in the startup ecosystem how do you find the few the handful of them that are a perfect fit for the business to build commercial partnership uh, it is not possible to build such commercial partnerships with many many of them so you have to be very picky about who you choose to partner with and who do you choose to partner with and that's a problem that's quite difficult for large corporations to solve and having spent the past 10 years in that world i want to be able to help both sides both the corporate side and the startup side so that they can build a bridge so i want to be able to do that even better with your ventures 2.0 1.0 i would say is a start but 2.0 mm -hmm. i want to do that even better i think a lot of people find value in that i know for me personally i've only ever been in the startup space and Sometimes when I'm trying to communicate and work with people who are coming from the corporate world into the startup space, it's like we're speaking two completely different languages and we have to find someone who's had a foot in both 
to translate because if there isn't a translator yes we are both speaking english but we're speaking two completely different versions of english like if there isn't a translator the pieces all end up falling on the floor simply because we don't realize that we're saying the same thing just using different terminology different metaphors coming at it with different worldviews but i'm definitely excited for 2.0 no pressure <laughs> do you prefer to lead or co-invest with other vcs that's a very want? popular question uh, asked of many vcs there are some vcs that only follow and they wait for a lead and there are investors who have a very strong preference to lead but let me answer the question in a slightly different way the way i want to position your ventures is that when i make an investment in a startup that should be a very strong positive signal for the world it should be a positive signal of confidence for customers for potential future employees to join the company for other investors in the future to invest in the company so that's the way i position myself there will be situations where i would lead investments and that would be the appropriate thing to do and there will be situations where i would co-invest with the appropriate lead preparing the investment funding round for the startup i'm not going to force the situation i will only lead or i will only co-invest and although i prefer to lead the important role i want to play is that i want to be among the first people that the entrepreneur calls to get help either to call and celebrate and say we had a victory today we won a customer contract or i'm having troubles that i'm not able to talk to anybody else or i just need a shoulder to lean on and brainstorm some strategic problems i want to be the first phone call that i get from these entrepreneurs that's a spot that should be earned mm-hmm. it is not easy and it's enormous amount of trust and it's an honor to get those phone calls the first phone call from entrepreneurs when they are feeling jubilant or when they're feeling down that's mm-hmm. what i'm going to work towards the question of leading or co-investing it's important from a, a practical point of view but my aim is to be an important investor and earn that spot so that i get the first phone call from the entrepreneur to help them that's very cool i think that's one of the reasons you're one of my top mentors i like yeah. being that coach i admire entrepreneurs who are the players they deserve to win all the accolades but I really enjoy playing the role of a coach where my small contribution makes a huge impact on them and most of the time they don't need any help but occasionally they might need a little bit of support and nudge here and there and that's what I'm here to offer. It's kind of cool how like you can be working on some really crazy big projects with really huge risks, high reward and there's just this human element where hey, I'm about to jump off this cliff. just hold my hand for a second and getting to be there with the founders when they're making these huge jumps having that front seat and being the support i think is one of the coolest things about working in the startup space that's what makes uh. my job the best job in the world i get front row seats to this adventure it's amazing yeah i always say i don't want to be the smartest person in the room i want to be the secret weapon or the right hand of the smartest person in the room but it's a very fun spot very exciting spot to be How is your firm different from the thousands of others around the planet? I play a specific role in this market. I invest in pre-seed or seed stage investments, seed stage startups in the Silicon Valley. I'm located in the Silicon Valley. I make investments nationwide in the US. And there are not many firms like this. There are a few large VC firms that focus on the insure tech sector but they don't primarily focus on just insurance they are pretty generic and they also want to dabble in the world of insurance i welcome that it's great i'm glad that there are players like that there are fintech focused funds and even some insure tech focused funds but they are much larger they invest only in series a or later stages and that leaves a gap in the market for investors like me and i hope to see a few more funds like sure ventures focusing on seed stage in the insure tech sector there are a few small funds micro vc funds that focus on many different types of topics but when they make investments at seed stage they look at also insurance and not just insurance so it's good that they have exposure to the world of insure tech but none of them really focus primarily on insurance and there's a lot of synergies and cross pollination that can happen when multiple portfolio companies are facing similar problems solving for the same type of efficiencies that they want to bring in, but in different ways there's possibilities for collaboration and that's something that i would be able to do that most other vc firms wouldn't be able to do what criteria do you look for in startups before you make an investment 
I'm glad you asked that question and not the question predict the future and tell me what's going to happen in the future because I have literally no idea how the future is going to go. <laughs> If anybody yes, does. Get out your crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not a psychic. I have no way to predict what's next best thing. If I was, I would be an entrepreneur. Honestly, I don't. <laughs> I believe entrepreneurs are the ones that create the future and Yeah. They have a much better view on where the world should be and often they are frustrated because they see that world in the future and they're working hard to make that future happen but they are stuck in the present and they're dealing with current situations and problems. So I'd leave it to the entrepreneurs to predict the future. So my my work here is to find yeah. ambitious, mission-driven, motivated entrepreneurs who are working towards a problem that will improve the way we live. and they are committed for the long term so my aim is to find such entrepreneurs and once i find them i want to be able to add value to their mission if i can be a part of their journey it'll be an honor to be to participate and i would fight my way to get a spot in the front row seat so i can watch this adventure happen and hopefully contribute to that journey So that's the approach that I take. And when I look for entrepreneurs, there are a few things that I look for. So I'll give an example. In the, in the past, one of my portfolio companies called Roost, Roel Peters is the founder, the CEO. He didn't come from the world of insurance, but he's one of the prolific entrepreneurs who has built a business that has had an impact on many, many insurance companies. So I like entrepreneurs who are not necessarily from the world of insurance or any domain. Entrepreneurs coming from the outside tend to have a fresh perspective, a new way of looking at things. The lack of detailed knowledge is actually good. They are not jaded. So when they see new ideas they walk in with a spark of innocence in their eyes and they just go out and try things and that's not something that can be done by experts experts have brilliant ways that they can think of to kill a new idea and they know a thousand ways of how something would fail but entrepreneurs who are fresh in their thinking they can come up with a lot of creativity so that's something that I I look for that doesn't mean that people who have a little bit of expertise cannot but in especially in the world of insurance it's very helpful to have someone who has knowledge in the sector but i would tell entrepreneurs if you're looking to solve a problem go to a sector that you won't be held back by your past experiences then you will be able to find something that you can do differently and that will change the way status quo is today and i believe that such entrepreneurs have a much greater impact in the world so that's one thing that i look for i always look for different people ask different questions if it's your own personal money would you make an investment they have a their own emotional filter they they use and i ask the question is this an entrepreneur that i could work for and if i was vp of business development or vp of something working for this entrepreneur or this founding team how would i feel about it and i need to get a very strong feeling about it an intuitive feeling and also of course backed by a lot of data to show that there's an opportunity here the market opportunity is huge and the problem that is being solved is real it's not just a hobby and there's clearly a business plan that is flushed out so all of those things come together but at the end of it there's the cherry at the on top of the cake is that feeling personal feeling that If I did work for this founding team, how would I feel? When I cross over that bridge, it gives me the confidence that all right, I can back this team and I can stay forever committed to building this business. Those are the two main things that I look for. Why do you focus on the insure tech sector? We talked about a few reasons, the my own personal reason yeah. and where I see the business opportunity here, there's lots of room for innovation. but let's kind of go to the next level of detail here if you look at the fintech sector there's depends on which report you read there's about 150 billion dollars of venture capital funding that has gone into the fintech sector and fintech sector targets banking industry this fintech sector has produced significant amount of innovation that has transformed the world of banking the examples like robinhood on wealth management robo advisors betterment wealthfront to those kind of companies there's peer to peer lending companies like prosper lending club and those type of companies and there's a host of other types of fintech companies which has led to more than 25 unicorns i believe in the fintech sector so as a venture capital investor i'm looking for a pond where i can fish there would be rich with opportunities like this in the future where is that opportunity so when i look at it purely from a business perspective as a venture capital investor i see the opportunity in insurtech and i see that there's about 10 billion dollars of venture capital funding over the past 4 5 years and i expect that in the next 10 20 years that number is going to multiply a lot and the number of startups today in insurtech is about 300 or so and 
there will be many, many more in the insure tech sector. And I can only imagine the number of unicorns that will come out of this space. So I think this is a space that is very ripe for innovation. And there will be lots of opportunities for startups to build billion dollar businesses and even bigger than that. And that makes it very attractive as a venture capital investor for me. And at a personal level, this topic of providing access to insurance products creates a safety net. Once we figure out a better way to manage risk, measure risk and distribute risk, it creates an even better world for all of us. And there are new types of insurance products that will be created like cyber insurance. That's a whole new set of liabilities that we haven't encountered before, but we will, and it's only going to grow and the different types of new liabilities that we will get exposed to. We need new insurance products for that. And there are some legacy insurance businesses like auto insurance and others where there needs to be a new way to build a business model. These legacy insurance products and services are stuck the way they were, you know, auto insurance is sold. It was the same way it was sold 40 years ago. And the business model is pretty much the same. And can we use technology to make a difference in how we build these insurance products? Can these products be born in the digital world? And that makes a main impact on people's lives. And there's lots of opportunities here, especially in the world of insurance. Engagement with customers is very poor. Insurance sector lags behind many other sectors. Even banking is better. So I actually was the management team, executive team of a large insurance company. And I asked them, why are you in the Silicon Valley? They said, we want to be like the banks, innovative. I rolled my eyes like, I cannot believe that they're using banks as a benchmark for innovation. So there is clearly a lack of trust and there is an opportunity to build trust using digital platforms. Now, how do you build trust in the digital world with customers who don't want to meet agents anymore? They sometimes make a phone call, but even that is kind of dwindling away. But how do you engage with them on a mobile platform? Maybe through text messages, maybe through video, maybe through chatbots, maybe through web platforms. How do you build trust in through those platforms, through those engagement uh, opportunities. I think the legacy way of engaging with a customer only twice, once when insurance companies negotiate premium to renew a policy or sell a new policy, that's one time, and the other opportunities when there's a claim. And the claim experience, no matter how awesome it is, customers don't want that to repeat. So besides these two opportunities, how do you engage with customers in a more meaningful way, perhaps throughout the year and throughout their life so that the insurance companies and products are seen as a trusted solution that they rely on for their lives. How do you do that, both for individuals and businesses? Commercial products, are, they have a very similar problem as well. So that creates a whole new opportunity. And then at the end of all of this is so much data, and we're barely scratching the surface on the amount of data that will be available in the future when IoT devices and many other technology-based sensors produce data. How do you use that data to generate insights, meaningful insights that will help us measure, manage, and underwrite and distribute risk? So that's the most interesting thing. So we're still a long way from capturing opportunities on the data side, but innovation and business model, creation of new products, engaging with customers, and those are things that are relevant today. You have a long list of reasons. I'm looking forward to you changing this sector because I am definitely part of that group that does not want to talk to an agent. (laughs) (laughs) it happened in the travel world there was a time when there were a lot of agents and agents helped you book tickets distributing insurance products was very effective through agents and how can we replicate that success it's not that all the insurance companies are laggards and they don't have valuable knowledge that's not true at all in fact if we can find knowledge that resides with these agents if we can learn from them and enable the future of insurance through technology platforms that can replicate the success of these agents. The average age of these agents are 59, and they aren't training the next generation of distribution in insurance. So their wealth of knowledge is disappearing. And how can we tap into that wealth of knowledge so that we can benefit from the future without having to reinvent how they did work? So that's something that many startups can learn. I don't know if you know Ladino or Yiddish, but they're not very well-documented languages. So the only way to learn is for someone who's older to invest the time and energy into teaching you. And both of the languages are kind of dying outside of certain areas just because 
so few old people are having that time to sit down with the young ones and teach yeah. them. I mean, that's happening in the world of insurance, especially with the agents. I believe it. If languages that were core to the Jewish culture are dying, <laughs> imagine insurance know-how. <laughs> yeah, but the other aspect of it is that a lot of the underwriting is done manually and there's a lot of subjective thinking. There's a lot of know-how and intuition that's used in addition to data. But can we make it more optimized and can we more data-driven uh, now that we have access to data and we have better ways of gathering insights from data? How can AI automate a lot of these things? And I believe that's going to have a huge impact. And I think the incumbents should be ready to embrace those things. Whether they like it or not, technology will have an impact on a big chunk of insurance industry. How many startups are in your portfolio right now? I have six startups in my current portfolio at Shore Ventures, and I'm very, very excited about them. I got very lucky to find some amazing entrepreneurs to back. They are Mile Auto. It's a paper mile auto insurance business. Decent.com is a blockchain-based health insurance platform. Rocket Dollar is an investment diversification platform where people can invest their retirement funding into alternate assets. Hi Marley is an intelligent conversation platform for insurance companies. Blitz is a video-based customer support platform that can be used for claims processing and underwriting. The last one, the sixth one, is a Spot Angels. It's a data analytics for parking. If someone wants to find out more about these startups, they can go to your website? Yes, my website is www.sure.ventures, and that has details about all these portfolio companies. As much as I'd love to spend the rest of the podcast talking about each one of those, maybe we can have those people on the show. Let's jump to the next question. Does the general process look like for a startup that ends up in your portfolio? Each case is different. So there's no one set way. The typical opportunity is where the, I get introduced to the entrepreneur through someone that is in my network. And most VCs operate this way. So getting introduced to me through someone that I already know is a good way to start the relationship. In some cases, some of these relationships has been established for a long time. It's, it has lasted many, many years. But in some cases, there are brand new relationships and I, we make an investment after a few meetings. So the process kind of varies. It's, there's no one set way. But getting an introduction through someone that I already know is very, very helpful. And the second step of the process is I always like to learn so I'm an ultra geek. I, I geek out on so many different topics. I'm always interested <laughs> in learning. My wife makes fun of me that I spend too much time on obscure things that may or may not have any consequence. But the part of me that really gets excited is when I sit down and talk about something that the entrepreneur is very passionate about and they've thought about it so much that I had never thought about it that way. And we're after an hour of conversation, we're still talking about like, what about this? And what about that scenario? And that's very fascinating to me. And to be honest, that's actually what makes my job very, very interesting and fun. And that's what I live for. So if I can have that kind of conversation with an entrepreneur, then I get to learn. And that's very, very fulfilling for me. So in my process, that comes very early in my engagement. I didn't realize this is an actual strength on the strength finders test, but learner is one of them. And if it's a strength for you, it's an addiction. And it's so much fun, like learning something new, learning something new. But what I tend to forget is if that's not a strength for someone saying, hey, let's go learn a new language together. Sounds quite stressful to anyone that doesn't have that in their like top 10. Yeah, I did but... learn. I learned conversational Sanskrit and I found out that there's only a few thousand people who speak Sanskrit. Let me be clear. I'm not an expert. I speak like <laughs> sub beginner level, but there's no utility value for it. But I love it. I like learning things that are obscure. For a while, I was addicted to Udemy, and it was a real problem because I was just buying new courses like, oh, I have to do this one, and then I have to do this one, and then I have to do this one. And my husband was like, enough. You have work, you have a family, and you've decided to enroll in 800 hours of courses. You can spend one hour a day learning something new, and then you have the rest of your time with work, and then you're with your family. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. And then I was trying to think of ways that I could pull my daughter in. Well, would she want to learn this with me? And he's like, you're not teaching our three-year-old Python. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> do you maintain an anti-portfolio? I do. Most good VCs maintain an anti-portfolio. I have my own regrets of startups that I wish I had invested but didn't. But a lot of those things came to this pattern. 
what I would do is I would meet an entrepreneur, hear the story, and I would dig deeper and I would get very excited. And then something starts bothering me because I know too much about something very little and that becomes dangerous. A little bit of knowledge is too dangerous. Then I begin to argue against myself. Then over a period of time, I've convinced myself that maybe this is not good anymore. While I started with a lot of optimism and positivity and all that has faded away and then I feel too scared and I walk away from the opportunity. So I try to catch myself and avoid falling into this trap, but I don't think I can completely immunize myself from this, but I'm improving and learning every day with this. I always ask myself the rational question, am I scared because of a past experience or am I scared because of a real red flag here? So that helps me, but I've of course missed opportunities in the past. Like I went to business school at INSEAD. My classmate, Frederick Marzella, was the founder of Blah Blah Car. And I saw how hard it was, especially the first six to seven years. It was a struggle for him to build that business. Now, when I met him, it was called Commuto and it morphed in different ways. And now he's become wildly successful. Blah Blah Car is doing well. And they've raised lots of millions of dollars from various VCs. But around the same time when I saw ride-sharing startups in the U.S., I was quite jaded because I felt like, you know, this is a tough one because I saw firsthand how my friend was building the business and it really made me skeptical about it. And I was so wrong. The ride-sharing market has exploded. There's so many opportunities out there. And even the leaders are way, way bigger than I ever thought they would be. And as a VC, I feel embarrassed about it that I didn't see this coming. And in fact, I should have used my experiences from the past to get inspired, to get behind this. Instead, I let my own biases pull me back. I hope those things don't happen too frequently in the future, but I'm learning always. That's a really good approach to sit down and say, am I having this negative sentiment because there are red flags or am I having it because previously poor experience? I never thought of addressing it that way. I heard a really good quote from a CEO of a startup that I'm working with right now. He was saying that when you have a gut feeling or intuition, it's a culmination of all of your past experiences condensed into a two second reaction. So when your gut is telling you something, if you break it down later, when you have time to actually go through and write out, okay, what's the science behind why I was feeling this way? You'll usually find it's because of 300 different things that happened over the past four decades. And you're like, oh, okay. So this one second reaction was my brain quickly leaping through everything that has happened in the past. I think it's kind of cool how the human brain can do that. What are some tools and tactics that you use to manage your time and team effectively as an entrepreneur yourself? I put everything on my calendar. So I live by Google Calendar and that helps me stay organized. I have many symptoms of dyslexia, so I miss a lot of details is not my thing. So I rely on calendar quite a bit and a to-do list. Those two things really help me streamline my days and help me stay on top of things. But the key lesson here is that I've learned to say no to a lot of interesting things. And for someone like me that likes to learn and get dabble in different things, that's a very hard thing to do. But I have learned to be a little more disciplined and being tough on things that are not very productive and it can be fun watching YouTube and I deleted some of the social networking apps from my phone. I don't <laughs> use Facebook. So it's very easy to get distracted by those things. Now I, I say no and also to people. As a VC, I'm in the business of helping people and unleashing their maximum potential, but there's only so much time I have so I can only meet certain types of people that I can add value to. But I have to say no to some others mm -hmm. and I have to figure out what that boundary is. That's something that I've learned over the years to say no and stick to a routine so that my calendar dictates and tells me what I do. I don't know if you read the book Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, but there's one quote in there where he's talking to a gentleman who says, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Because <laughs> otherwise you end up having, looking back and saying, what have I done over the past three, four, five months or years? And you did a bunch of mediocre things. And when some amazing opportunity came along, you had to say no because you had signed up for like 18 mediocre things. So I kind of reshaped my schedule that way. 
And it takes a while. It, it definitely does. And being addicted to learning makes it really hard because there's all these cool random things you can learn about. But then you're moving in a hundred different directions and not really getting anywhere. You're just on the hamster wheel. But I could definitely resonate with that's a struggle I've been trying to overcome. All of us get 24 hours. It's a question of priority. So if we can yeah. prioritize the things that we care about and say yes to the things that matter to us, then it's not easy to do it consistently. But that's something that will make a huge difference how we live our lives. And it gets harder, as you now know, when you have a family, which brings me to our next question. You have a young family and you have a young shore venture. How do you balance the demands of work with the responsibility of raising this adorable family? Now, strangely, that actually helps me stay on top of things and be a lot more organized. The family is number one, comes above all else. So my evenings and weekends have become a lot more precious. And being in the venture business, it's very hard to be away from events and things like that in the evenings. But I try to limit them to one or two a week. Uh, so I've become very picky about what kind of events I attend and where I spend my time. So that's helped me streamline and also constantly look at my priority. Now, at the end of all of this, why I do what I do is for family. So I can have a, a beautiful family life and I don't want to sacrifice on that. Having that part of my life fully developed and being a good father, being a good husband, being, being a good son, being a good brother brings a wholesomeness to who I am and that allows me to be a good VC and good investor to my portfolio companies. I don't think I would be as good without my family. That's an interesting take on it because a lot of people are like, oh, I have to schedule this, I have to schedule that. But what you're saying is having all of that together is what makes you balanced. Yeah, this is something that I admire about the millennial generation, although I'm not a millennial. The importance of purpose in life and where you spend time is very clear to them. I think the previous generation of business leaders came from the philosophy that you kill yourself and you sacrifice your family. You don't spend any time with family and spending more hours at work is the best way to demonstrate that you're a committed employee and a good leader. But I think that has changed. It's not me that I'm not inventing this, but I think the world has changed to a point where it has now started to reward people who are fully developed and you know, who are wholesome and not just one dimensionally superior in one area and not good in other areas. So I think we are moving in that direction. I think it, the credit goes to the millennial generation that is pushing us in that direction. I think you're one of the very few people I've heard say anything positive about the millennial generation. Oh yeah, they're entitled and all that stuff, but it does come with very strong spirit of self-advocacy. And that self-advocacy includes, now I need to fight for my time for my family, whether it's a family or whether it's an annual vacation with your buddies that you go somewhere and they, they make sure that that happens. And that's yeah. the rhythm that keeps them going and they will never compromise on that. And I think it's a good thing. It, it will lead us to a better place. As a millennial, I could tell you, we graduated from college, having spent our entire childhoods being told, oh, if you go to college, you get a degree, you'll get a great job. We graduated into a recession. No one was getting hired. And then not only did we graduate into a recession, up to our eyeballs in student loan debt, we also had the wrench thrown into the healthcare where our cost of health insurance was up through the roof. And we were watching our parents lose everything that they had spent their entire lives working on. And it was just like, hold on. We were told this entire crashes when you're supposed to be in your coming of age years. I think that's what pushed a lot of my friends to be more firmly planted in the, if I'm going to have a job, it's going to give me a life purpose. I'm not going to be sitting there when I'm 60 saying, oh, I spent my entire life working for a nest egg that was lost in a recession. I think that perfect storm that we graduated into kind of created that sort of unique personality for the entire generation. Hopefully anyway. many, many of the problems you highlighted will be solved by some of my portfolio companies. I totally expect it. I am there. High expectations for those startups. The founders, if they're listening, high expectations for you people. <laughs> so, Challenge accepted. Oh, oh, here we go. Game is on. So if you could tell an app developer outside of your portfolio companies to create the perfect new tool for Shore Ventures, what would it be? Oh, I would love to have a personal CRM. If someone can build a personal CRM that helps me manage everything that happens on a day-to-day -day basis, 
all the relationships that I have, all the, the contacts that I make, all the bills that I need to manage, and all the data, the records that, that I need to keep up with, and all the administrative things that happen to have on a certain time. And if we can automate taxes and so many things, like everything is connected to everything else, but it's all living in 14 different locations. If there was a CRM that put it all together, I'd be the first customer. That actually would be amazing. That would be a total pain to be working for the cybersecurity of that company because you know everyone would want to hack it on a regular basis. But I've never heard that answer before. And I think I would be the second customer if and when it's created. We hope that happens. For those of you listening who know how to code, get on it. Let's go. So final question. If an aspiring entrepreneur wishes to connect with you, can they and where could they connect with you? Like Quora, LinkedIn, a Facebook page, or are you a ghost and they have to just hope the gods and planets allow them to align and meet you organically? I'm everywhere. I'm an advisor at many accelerators. I love spending time with entrepreneurs, learning more about how they build their business, their view of the world for the future. So I'm out there all the time. I teach. I'm an adjunct professor at INSEAD. I teach an entrepreneurship class there. I also do guest lectures at Berkeley and Stanford. I'm kind of out there in many different ways. At the end of all of this, I like getting a personal reference from someone who I know. So because I'm out there in all these different places, a lot of people know me. So having that personal introduction through someone matters most to me. Blind email through any of these other platforms. I get so many of those, it's really hard to tell for me which ones I need to pay attention to. But when someone I know sends an email to me and says, no, you should take a look at this, it makes it easier for me to prioritize that. Now I'm going to have an inbox flooded with, please introduce me to Gopi. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you listening, no, I will not make the intro. You have to find someone else who knows him. For Um, those of you listening, Adi knows a lot of people. She's extremely (laughs) well networked. So please email her. What? No. Gopi, I'm going to find a way to just pipe my inbox into yours. So every email I get, the 3,000 emails that come through are going to go straight to you as well. We will both be in email inbox purgatory for the next eight months. If we had that personal CRM to take care of it, we'd be good. I know. So here's the plan. Find someone to build the personal CRM. Once they do so, I will make you a personal intro to Gopi. (laughs) Ready? Go. All right. (laughs) Well, Gopi, I know this has been way more than 15 minutes. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. And I look forward to seeing what Shore Ventures does and keeping tabs on all of your cool startups. Thank you so much for bringing me on the show. Thank you for inviting me to share my experiences and my vision for how I'm going to build Sure Ventures. The spirit of enabling peace of mind for all individuals and businesses is something that I hold close to my heart. So I'm very honored to have the opportunity to share that vision with you and everyone that's listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you.